I am fully aware of my, well, let's say I'm as aware as I can be as a human of my frailties and my flaws. And I am really just a clay pot. But the treasure is Christ. And he wants to speak to our hearts. I really believe that. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and let's ask him to do that. Father, we just praise you today for your extraordinary goodness. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. We just ask you, Father, that you would save us, rescue us from our complacency and our apathy and our carnality and our consumerism and our discontent that you move in our lives and move in our hearts. Lord, this year in particular, maybe others have noticed it, I have because I'm helping with the conference. The devil has been fighting us from the very beginning. From the virus in the computer to the long lines to distract, to discourage, to cause our focus to be gone from the fire alarms to the smoke in the hall. Whatever he can do to the blown fuses, he's trying to do. Because I believe this is a critical hour. A critical hour in the history of this movement. A critical hour in the history of this nation. A critical hour across the world. In world history. Father, we just ask you that you would touch our lives today. That you'd drive home to our hearts that you're about revolution. And the same commitment that our founding fathers gave when they signed on that dotted line, when they pledged their blood, their possessions, their sacred honor, their future, and risk being hung by the king to form a new nation, you are asking the same and more from men and women today. And the truth is, so few are willing to give it. We ask you, we beg you, to make us different. Please use this time, Lord. You know, I'm not so ordered as the other guys, and I don't have PowerPoint, and I don't know how to speak like many of them. Please use my loaves and fishes and feed us and direct us and challenge us and mold us and imprint our hearts for the rest of our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. My session I entitled God's Revolution on Earth, and you may or may not be aware of it, but there is a revolution going on in the world today. And you can either be part of that revolution, or you can sit on the sidelines and be a spectator and a critic, carnal, apathetic, complacent, and lethargic. I chose 30 years ago that I want to be part of the revolution. I want to be a revolutionary. I I recently did something really silly and probably, as Brent said, was a waste of time, but it had a spiritual meaning for me. I I checked out the movie Billy Jack. Anybody ever seen Billy Jack? It was a cult film in 1974, 75, and Billy Jack had a big impact on me. And I watched the movie... 30 years later, 
and DVD, and I'm watching the whole thing and remembering to myself, that was everything I wanted my life to be about. I despise the status quo. I hate watching the downtrodden picked on. I despise the injustice of the world. And so at that young age, before I, before I was 19, I, I sort of embraced that hippie mentality. Then about a year later, I embraced that Christian warrior mentality. And looking back 30 years, I was just thinking, Lord, I've lived Billy Jack's life. It was no movie for me. I've been joined with other Billy Jacks. who are kicking butt around the world to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Who are laying down their lives sacrificially, men and women. Just like his girlfriend, his real wife in real life, Tom Laughlin's real life, Dolores Taylor, the school teacher with the Freedom School, gathering all of the, the broken and wounded kids together and starting their life over. And I remind every time I see the movie of David. It says all those who were indebted and distressed and discontent came to David. And it was from those that his mighty men came from. Did you know that? David didn't have the cream of the crop. We've never been the cream of the crop. Did you give me the weak and the insignificant despised nobodies and the people the world considers nothing. I'll take them and God will make something great out of them because that's the business God is in. And that's what God wants to do in your life. This revolution on earth is happening all over the world, and it is called the church. God's revolution on earth is the church, the real church. Not a building on a corner, but a group of men and women. And all across the world... There are these groups of men and women that have banded together. Often, they're small, little local churches that are striving to live out the revolutionary teachings of Jesus Christ. And they are revolutionary. As Brent was pointing out so eloquently today about leadership, Jesus turns all our value systems upside down if we're willing to embrace them. That's why most people do not embrace them, even Christians. It's a whole new orientation to life, a whole revolutionary new way of living. There's a lot of revolutions going on in the world today, the iPod revolution. There's some of us in this room that are old enough to remember phonographs and little square box record players that were red and white. You put 45s on them. And then we finally got eight tracks. Whoa, that was so amazing. And then there was cassettes, and then there was CDs, and now the digital revolution, and I don't have my sons or daughters here, but on this little box, what you'd have a stack normally of CDs this high now can fit on a little box that you carry in your pocket, and you can go to skip through any song you want, any artist you want. It's men that are on the cutting edge of revolution. Did you know that? Stephen Jobs and the iPod, Bill Gates and the computer, software. Why? Because they always want to strive. They always want to achieve something more. Men and women, God wants you and I to be on, involved in the cutting edge of the spiritual revolution. 
of God. And that spiritual revolution is your church. That spiritual revolution, the Bible refers to as Christ's body, as Christ's family, as Christ's army, as Christ's building, as Christ's bride, as Christ's flock. We often focus, and I believe rightly so, because there's so much scripture on the body of Christ in Corinthians. The family of God. And the army. Paul used army terms all the time to Timothy and to those that were with him. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life that he might please his commanding officer. What does that mean? What is he saying to Timothy? I'll tell you what he's saying. I, I, I have... A number of passions in my life, it probably I could whittle them down to three or four, but one of the main goals of my life, one of the main passions of my life is to raise up and inspire Christian revolutionaries who will march to the beat of the divine drum and embrace the revolutionary teachings of Jesus Christ as their lifestyle and teach others to do the same. That's what it's about. That's really what this movement is about. This movement, if I can be so bold as to just speak it, is a counterculture Christian movement. We've always been that. We always stay that. And I will always resist being anything other than that. We march to the beat of a different drummer. Now, there are other revolutionary organizations out there and churches. I'm not saying we're the only one. I'm saying we're one of them. And I want to be one of them. The church is where lives are transformed and revolutionized. The word revolution means to embrace a revolutionary set of doctrines and principles. And if you can't Describe the teachings of the Bible as revolutionary. I don't know what is. You had Mao Zedong's cultural revolution that destroyed millions of lives. You had the Bolshevik revolution that destroyed millions of lives. You had Pol Pot and the revolution that destroyed millions of lives. You have Castro's that's still destroying. And Chavez in Venezuela that is destroying. And Morales just elected in Bolivia that will destroy. And then there's us. And it's Christians in those countries that are joined in a counter-revolution, the revolution of God. And it's appalling, is it not, that you've got men and women who will lay down their lives for a meaningless secular revolution. Did you know that in the 20th century, more people were killed and murdered in the name of the good government than in all the previous centuries combined. More were murdered. More were destroyed. More were killed. And all throughout the ages, especially the last 2,000 years, the Christian message has gone out in these places and redeemed lives and transformed lives and brought about revolution. Revolutions in healthcare, Revolutions in hospitals. Revolutions in caring for children. Did you know that the Roman... In the Roman society, a man was 
king of his own family. And if he didn't want a child, a newborn baby child, especially if she was a little girl, they would set her out on the fence or out on the stone wall, let them die and let the wild animals eat them. Do you know what the early church did? They went at night and took the babies off the wall. And one of the great historians comments that the reason Christianity spread so rapidly throughout the Roman world was Christianity, the Christians were so kind against the backdrop of the brutality of the Romans. They pale in comparison to what the communists did all across Europe. They pale in comparison. They're civilized. The Romans are civilized to what's happening in many of the Muslim countries today. The revolution of God on this earth is the church, and you're part of it. Did you know that the church is the group of the most important people in the world? Not because of works of righteousness that we have done, that we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. And God chose in his grace and mercy to put us in the family, put us in the body, put us in the army. You need to get your eyes off yourself and get them on Christ and recognize how significant you are in world affairs. How significant you are. I was so moved by Herschel's story last night about that woman named Thelma. Just imagine this handicapped woman. She got it. She understood it. And she knew her prayers could make a difference in that house behind closed doors. And 46 lives were forever changed. Because she understood she was a revolutionary even if she was in a wheelchair. <clears throat> I want you to imagine for a moment, try anyway, it's maybe hard, but you try. That the year is 1975. And God is just beginning to work in your life. He's just beginning to move in a powerful way. And you've just met this group of radical Christians on your college campus or in your little town, and they meet weekly in people's homes. They always have a meal together, and they cover their big old Bibles with handmade leather covers, and they all say New American Standard on the side. They sit in these homes, and they sing these Jesus songs. They share Bible verses with each other, and they're all striving to do whatever the Bible tells them to do. These people really believe you're supposed to do what the Bible says. I mean, they're just like crazy. They actually think it's a guidebook. They actually think Jesus meant what he said. Your group has about, ah, oh, 50 people, 100 people. You're told there's a few other groups like this around the country that each know each other. They're trying to work together for a common purpose. All together, 1975, there's maybe 500 or 1,000 of them. That was Great Commission in 1975. Approximately today, there are 55,000 people in a Great Commission churches. There are hundreds of pastors raised up. The question I want to share with you today, I want to especially emphasize today, is how did we get here? How did we get from there to here? Because I believe in our history lies our future. I believe in our history, the crystal ball for the future is the ball of the past. Because the past represents to us 
that core value that God imprinted upon our heart, that the church is God's revolution on the earth, that the church is God's vehicle for impacting the world, reaching the world, and we need to get as many of them going as we can before we die. It's my motto. I can't predict how many there will be. I'm just committed to giving my life to get as many started and going as I can before I die. And I'm trusting God that as I'm doing my part, our part on the wall, and Campus Crusade's doing its part, and Operation Mobilization, and Gospel for Asia, and this church over there, and this church over there, that when it's all said and done, we will have accomplished the task. But our job, our job, I believe God has given us uniquely. I believe it's biblical. It's to plant as many of them as we can. It's to hold on to a passionate conviction that the church is what people need, that the church is where it's at, that the church is where I grow, the church is where I'm transformed, the church is where I learn my habits. You know, it's, it's really interesting. There's a guy who's written a book. It's a serious book. It's humorous, but it's serious. called Everything I Ever Needed to Learn, I Learned Before I Started Kindergarten. You ever heard of the book? It's something like the title. How many have heard of the book? Did you know that's really true? Did you know, listen to me, and are really important. This is very important. The most important lesson you're going to learn in life for many things in life is right at home with mom and dad. This is why we're so broken today in society, and the church has got to play actually massive catch-up because so many people do not have an effective, loving home environment in which to grow. I believe that all you need is the church. I'm not saying we need the family. You need the family. But I, to, for the spiritual work God wants to do, for what he wants to accomplish in the world, it's the church. And the church actually supports the family, and they feed one another back and forth. They bless one another. We got here through church planting. Church planting spreads the revolution. Church planting spreads the revolution. See, this group of Christians, they were fanatically devoted to raising up their own pastors, just like Brent shared, and regularly uprooting, selling their homes, and moving somewhere else to start new missionary outreaches called the church. The church. This group of Christians observed as they studied the New Testament, and in particular the book of Acts, that the disciples would travel from town to town preaching Christ. Then they would gather the new converts, and those converts would start living as a church. They organized them and led them as New Testament churches, and they worked to raise up pastors for each of these new churches. This pattern was carried out over and over again throughout the New Testament. In fact, this was, now listen carefully to this, This was the Apostle Paul's main work. Yes, he preached the gospel. I believe as he preached the gospel, his main work, his main work, his letters, what were the letters for? To help establish and grow the churches. His main work was to establish these churches, get them growing. Now, I'll get into why. Paul was not just trying to get the gospel out and make converts. Now, listen. I'm not going to make a comment on any particular people today, but there, there are some people that believe it's their calling in life to only get the gospel out. And I praise God for that, man. It's phenomenal what God has done through so many who have just given their life to evangelism. 
Paul, I would be safe to say, was one of the first great evangelists of the world. But there's something very ironic about Paul. Paul was much more like John Wesley than what we see today. Paul believed that he was not just supposed to reach converts, but he formed them in churches because he knew they were bonded to him because he helped reach them. He preached to them. He didn't just send them to go back wherever they wanted to go. He banded them together and he began to grow them and help them grow and raise up their own leaders and bond them together. This was, historians have observed, the great difference between the impact of George Whitfield, who preached to thousands of people. George Whitfield was preaching to 50 to 80,000 people without microphones. They would come from the cities to hear him preach. They would weep. They would fall down in conscious awareness of their sin and repent. But some years after George Whitfield, it dissipated. The difference between John Wesley, John Wesley would preach and he would organize them in small groups in homes and it was referred to as the Method Movement, the Methodist Movement. It lasted far longer than Whitfield's because he planted something. He left these little bands of churches together. Paul was not just trying to get the gospel out and make converts. He was striving to establish thriving New Testament churches throughout the Roman world. Think of it as a strategic spiritual invasion into enemy's territory. By establishing lots of churches, he was infiltrating and destabilizing the devil's kingdom. It was a revolution in the world. He was establishing a growing Christian witness throughout the cities of the Roman Empire. He was spreading yeast through the whole lump of dough. I don't know if you know this, but this movement in some ways started from a little town in Kansas. I mean, it was out in Colorado. Then they ended up with a little group of Christians in Kansas. And... One day, they did what Brent did over a spring break. They thought, you know, we want to train our people in evangelism. Why don't we go up to Iowa State University and reach out there and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Be some good training for our people. So they go up there to Iowa State, and Dennis and the singers, they would go up to the top of the elevator, and the doors open. They go, hey, there's this great band down in the lounge, and he was the band. And they would go all the way down, and then people would come down to the lounge, and there they'd be with no PA, just their folk guitars and sing and then Jim would preach and about 50 to 80 people got saved that weekend and they thought to themselves well gee whiz we can't just leave these Christians we better do something so they all went back to Kansas said basically my understand we'll be back and they send people up they said look you move from here go up there be with those Christians let me ask you this question what would have happened if the team of Christians had never gone to Ames to reach out over that spring break? And what if all they had done was simply reach out with the gospel in the city and then said, well, just find a church? You ever thought about that? Oh, just, just find a church. Yeah. I'm a new baby. How does a new baby find a church? Have you ever thought about that? What, what am I supposed to look for? How, how would I know if it's a good one? Those people won't even know me. You know me. You just birthed me from the womb. You just birthed me. Adopt me. I want to be with you. I'm your little baby duckling. What if they just left their new converts 
at Iowa State, a little like fishing called catch and release. What if they hadn't taken a team from Iowa State? They were just there a while, a while, maybe about a year, and then they said to Mike, Cater, and Dennis, just these young guys, you know what, guys? We're going to go out to Ohio State, and they did an outreach out there. They left them there. You guys stay here now. They're basically, you don't know this, they're basically two major roots in this movement. The Ames route, the Ohio route. Jim stayed in Ames, and Dennis went to Ohio. And Herschel traveled all around. <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> I know that he was in Texas, and he was in Missouri, and he's in Europe, and Europe got started because of Herschel. Where would we be? Where would we be today if this had not happened? Think about that. Where would we be? You know, it's interesting. I'll jump a little ahead of myself, then come back. I have tremendous admiration. I want you to know this before I make this, this, this comparison so you understand something for Bill Hybels. I really do. I've learned a lot from Bill Hybels. I, I admire tremendously his passion for reaching lost people. And God has used Bill Hybels far more than he's used me and actually far more than he's ever going to use me. God has used Rick Warren far more than he's going to use me and than he'll ever use me. I thank God for those men. I really do. What an impact they have had. My wife has sent uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, to many of the hard relatives who had never listened to us. And now her grandmother, after 30 years, read the book and her mom and read the book and her dad read the book and they used to hate our guts. And God is using that book in thousands and millions of people's lives. Bill Hybels stayed in Chicago. and He started Willow Creek in about 1975 and today they have about 18,000 people coming. We have 55,000 people in this movement. There's no great corporate CEO Bill Hybel types in this room. They just don't exist in our movement. Would I rather have 55,000 or 17? You do the math. Would I rather have hundreds of pastors who are trying to raise up other pastors? Or would I rather have a church of a group of pastors that are just there? You see what I'm getting at? This is what God has uniquely laid on our heart. God has uniquely laid something out on Bill Hybels, and God has used him all over the world, actually. But we want to be faithful to what God has put on our heart. We want to be faithful to what God has imprinted on us because this is what he's asked us to do. This is what he's asked us to do. I would like to cover with you and challenge you to prepare to be a church planter, every one of you. To prepare to give the rest of your life to church planting. I want you to consider that. I want you to think about this. Listen to this. The Kennedys decided to live their lives for politics and a political revolution. Almost every one of them. Did you know that? Joseph Kennedy used to run moonshine. He was a bootlegger. That's what he was. He was Irish. He was into power. He inspired his son Jack, his son Robert, Teddy. I don't agree with their politics. But I marvel and I step back and I go, you know what, Lord? If they can raise a family for politics, then I want to raise a family for God. Why do we think the world can accomplish things, but we can't? 
Look at the Mannings. You got Eli Manning, you got the other Manning, and you got Daddy Manning. Man, they're raising those sons to be quarterbacks. Why aren't we thinking of raising our kids for God? We're just kind of content if they stay out of jail, don't do drugs, they come to church with us, read their Bible once in a while. I'm expecting a lot more than that. I'm, and Rick's going to get in. I'm expecting a lot more than that, let me tell you. I'm expecting them to take my place. In fact, in fact, honestly, I think they'll be greater than their dad. Because they had all those years. I, I didn't have my, all my teen years. They, my young, they were wasted. Theirs were not. They had the molding of a godly mother. I had a godly mother, but I, my dad, they weren't joined, and it, it, used to, it got to be a mess. I decided 30 years ago to live my life for the church and God's revolution. And I decided to raise my family to live that revolution. We eat it, we drink it, we sleep it. I don't have time today because of this special thing we have coming to get into it all. But we eat it, we sleep it, we drink it. Even in our own city, I've strategized with my own family. When we started the church plant in Plymouth, I sent half of my family to go help there for almost two years. My family and we went to different churches in the city. While I was speaking at Bloomington, my wife and children were out at West Minneapolis. They were involved in the teen group helping to get it off the ground. My wife was helping with whatever she could help with. Then when my kids got to be about 17, 18, finished college, Jeremy and Celeste, who were up here earlier, it's like, you know what? I want to plant another church. We called it The Rock because I wanted them to give their life to it and be involved and see that their abilities and their God-given talent, they can be used for God. You can be used for God. Listen, you know our great desire as men, us old guys, and I'm an old guy. I really feel old these days. Not because I'm around you. I just ache all the time. I'm tired all the time. I don't have my... I don't have high gear anymore, and I hate it. We want to be a platform for you. You know what excites me about Faith Walkers? is the young people that are making this happen. It's mostly young people that are leading you in worship, that are running our sound, that set up all this stuff. I just want to be a platform for them. If I could be a trampoline you could jump on and go higher, that is great by me. There are 11 very important things that I believe you can do to prepare to plant churches. Now, when I say prepare to plant, I mean prepare to be part of planting, not necessarily be the leader of it. You could be praying for that too. But no matter whether you're the leader of it or you're the participant in it, I want you to know that all of you are going to need to develop these 11 things. So you get your pencil ready. They're not going to be super hard to write down. Number one, prepare vocationally. Prepare vocationally and develop a marketable skill. Rick is going to get into this more tomorrow, but I want to relate it to church planting. It's very important, young person, young person, that you take whatever your education and your job stuff seriously that you get yourself marketable into the world in which we're in and that you do more and more than flipping burgers, that you have greater aspirations for that. Prepare. Every one of my children, I sat down, especially with my sons, we talked about the strategy of what they need to be prepared for the future. Why? 
Preparation gives you flexibility. Flexibility gives you options. And without options, you cannot be a church planter or part of the team. You can't be. I'm a very pragmatic individual. I like what Jack said. Listen, I'm an idealist and I'm a realist. And I try to bring those ideals into the realities of life. The wise man looks ahead. The wise man prepares. The wise man prepares. The wise woman prepares. So prepare vocationally for something that is marketable, something you can take to different parts of the country and or the world that fit with some of the interest and skills that you have. But listen very carefully to this. I told this to all my children. There's probably one thousandth of one percent of the entire nation that gets paid to do what they really love. Stop that dream. Give up that hopeless dream. Nobody's going to pay you to play basketball. I'm sorry. And not a person in this room is going to get paid to play basketball. Try to find something that, not that you hate, but something that uses some of the interests and abilities you have. For example, you might, I'll just use this example. Let me just throw it out. You might be an artist. You might love art. You love to sit around and draw all day and paint. Listen, nobody's going to pay you. I hate to dash your dream to be a Michelangelo. It isn't going to happen. But you might be able to be a graphic designer. You might be able to prepare some tools on the computer where you can use your art and then use your other abilities and what you're really interested in, the church. The church. You see, did you realize that Paul was bivocational? Paul was a tent maker. Many times he provided for himself. Other times he was provided for Think, prepare. Number two, get out of debt and stay out of debt. Get out of debt and stay out of debt as soon as you possibly can. When I was younger, I worked almost 80 hours a week just to get out of debt. It was not debt that I chose deliberately. It was debt that came about because of unforeseen circumstances. Nothing I could do about them. It wasn't because I'd maxed out a bunch of credit cards. I had everything I could get out of debt so I would be ready to go. I didn't have the burden and the shackle. When you have debt, it reduces your options. And the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Number three. Now, I, I mean something by this and I don't mean something by this. So it's two words. Marry well. M-A-R-R-Y. W-E-L-L. Marry well. Best thing that ever happened in my life besides Jesus was Kathy, my wife. And it's not an exaggeration. Kathy and I were different. We're different personalities. We're different temperaments. The longer we live with each other, the more we realize we're different. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for that woman. And she's been the springboard in my life. She has loved me like no one else, been devoted to me like no one else, seen me carnal like no one else, put up with me like no one else. Prayed for me like no one else. And been behind me. Slapped me upside the head when I needed it. Give me the encouragement, affirmation, love and affection I needed. Believed in me. And most importantly, most importantly, ladies, listen to this. She has kept her heart purely holy Christ. Many years ago, Kathy asked me this question. This is a heavy question when you're a husband. You'll understand when I say this. She said to me, Mark, 
If there was any one thing that I could do for you to be most important, what would it be? A lot of things come to your mind as a young husband. That question gets asked. Usually, actually, only about one, but I won't get into that. It's certainly biblical, but we, we won't get into that. I looked at Kathy, and I thought really long and hard. I thought, you know what? This is a huge moment right here. This is, this is a huge moment right now. It kind of dawned on me. Like, it was, there was no one else around, and it was really quiet. It was like, she really wants to know what I think. What am I going to say? And real, my mind processes pretty fast. That's another thing that's frustrating about getting old. I, don't, I misfire sometimes. I don't, I don't like that. And I looked at her, and I said, Kathy... The single most important thing you do for me is this. Don't become a basket case. Don't become an anchor around my feet. Stay encouraged in God. Keep your own heart encouraged. Keep focus on the Lord because I'm going for God and I cannot be slowed down. And she took that and every day of our married life, my wife has stacks and stacks of journals. She'd be sitting in her bedroom in the morning, that chair, reading her Bible, going over her journal, keeping her heart, the knots combed out of the hair of her heart. She's just there. And when I travel and I'm here, or I'm there, or I'm going, she knows, you know what, Mark? You're Christ first. You're God's first. And I'll be rewarded for the fact that I released you to do the will of God, not that I claimed you for my own. Marry well. Nothing will destroy your life faster than marrying bad. And all of us pastors, we could tell you that, oh, the wounded, the brokenness that we see in marriages because you wouldn't wait. You wouldn't wait. That's actually the hardest word in the entire Christian life, W-A-I-T. It's a four-letter word in my opinion, and God has made me do it for 30 years in ways that it just, oh, my goodness, Lord, please, not again, the wait word. Number four, develop your God-given talents and strive for excellence. Develop your God-given talents and strive for excellence. Strive for excellence. I so appreciate the striving of Doug back there on our sound. Man, he reads books about it. He strives to do it the best that he can. He's in here constantly tweaking things to give you the best experience that you could have. Chris Phillips back there, he's got a young cadre of young men back there that are helping him, trying to get all this stuff together. Our band up here, these guys are practicing, practicing, practicing all the time. All the time. We are going to need to plant churches today. We're going to need people who are technologically savvy. We're going to need people who are artistically savvy. Develop your writing skills, your speaking skills, your loving skills. Well, I'm going to get into that other stuff in a minute. So right now, I just want to talk real practically. Your language skills. He was so right. Jack was so right. Learn a language. If you have an interest, learn it. Develop it. You never know when you might use it, but it'll make your mind sharper. You want to know something that struck me recently? You may have never heard anyone say this. And I would love to do a thesis on this, but I don't want to do a thesis. So... (laughs) I've been asking myself for a number of years, 
Why are Asians so successful? Why? There's got to be reasons. There's got to be. Many of them come from incredibly impoverished nations. They come to the United States. They're amazingly successful. One, obviously, their work ethic. But here's what hit me. Have you ever tried to learn the Chinese language? Do you realize why the Chinese, so many Chinese are excellent, extraordinary at physics and math? English is the easiest language in the world to learn. It's a dumbed-down, simpleton language. Good thing because it's all I really can speak. I try to fake it when I go to countries and, you know, I dramatize the accent and they think I'm cool and they like me for that, but then I know about five words. (laughs) Chinese, Japanese, man, is it Russian? It's tough. It's hard. Works your mind. It works your mind. You automatically, from the time you're just growing up, they they don't even realize that it's just second nature. They're trained in an incredibly difficult mental discipline their own language. Then when they learn to write all the characters and then learn to read, much is the same of Aramaic. Number five, develop your servanthood, your humility, and your team spirit. Your servanthood, your humility, and your team spirit. Number five, I cannot overemphasize this. Listen, you can learn to serve in anything. You can learn to serve by helping to straight up chairs after this meeting. You can learn to serve by standing at the door, getting water for people. You can learn to serve in a variety of ways. My my, uh, dear brother, Mark Bowen, and I, we were recently in Berlin. And uh, there there was a church meeting there. And and, um, afterwards, after the church meeting, uh, there's this one lady who's really devoted to Rock Berlin. And she's always kind of doing everything. She doesn't often have a lot of help. And so Mark looked at me and said, you know, Mark, let's, let's, do the, let's beat her to the pond. Let's do the dishes. And, and let's, uh, so it's a great idea. So we start, well, these people, that, their church there is a little different. And very, very social. And they have these little tables they sit on. They always have a meal afterwards. And it's a very cool meal. So we're taking the plates, asking people if they need any more. And, and then I'm getting a broom, sweeping the floor. And Mark's beginning the dishes. And there was a German woman there about... 44 years old, did not know the Lord, didn't speak any English. Many do there, so that's part of how I can get by. And um, she looked at this woman who usually does this stuff. She says, who are these men? And this girl got a big smile. She goes, oh, there are pastors. Oh, we're not really their pastors, but, you know, that's how she thinks of it. And this woman looked at her, and she got kind of emotional, and she said, I have never in my life, I'm 45, I've never in my life seen men do dishes or sweep a floor. That's, that's not what German men do. I want to I um, brag for a moment. I hope you're okay. You can rebuke me later. Then it'll be done anyway, and I'll repent, but it'll be done. <laughs> you, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of my son, he's the one with the shaved head and the weird-looking guitar. Is Jeremy's humility and his team spirit. Let me explain why. You look up on the stage and you may see certain things. I look up on the stage and I see something very different. I knew when I was going to ask Steele to sing and lead worship, I knew people would really like it. They'd really embrace it. Steele's band opened for Train. Steele's band opened for Maroon 5. You know, Steele kind of had that life before he came to Christ. 
When I was a young man, you couldn't have got, paid me enough money as a young Christian to go, I'm not, I'm not getting on stage of steel. I'm not, you know, I either lead the worship or, you know, I just, you lead the worship. But I ain't going to get up there. Why? Well, because everybody will start to compare us. And I t- told Jeremy, you know, I'd like to have steel this year and you. And, and I said, I'd like to fly out to Salt Lake City. I have some extra frequent flyer miles just so you guys can kind of get your groove together and get to know each other. And so about a month and a half ago, he flew out and They just have no idea. I'm observing all this. They don't know I'm observing this. It's like Jonathan and David. And like my son just said, brother, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Let's just work together. And Jeremy, just step aside, man. Go for it, brother. I want to help you with Bart. I see that with Bart. Bart's an amazing songwriter. And we sings and delivers a song. And Jeremy's like, yeah, Bart, let's do your song from the CD. I'm 49, and I think I'm just starting to get my hands around all of that. They're 24 and 25. Do you know what we could do with a room full of men and women like that? Do you even have any idea what church would be like with that level of humility and team spirit and cooperation that says, look, I'll play second fiddle. Here, I'm with God to use you. I'm praying for you. Probably till my son dies, that will be the thing that I'm the most proud of. Is his humility and his willingness as another artist to say, I, how can I serve you? How can I make you great? How can I help you? We can't plant churches that model what Christ wants us to model without that spirit. Number six, grow your character. I don't have time to get into all of those aspects, but let me just say this. The things that Brent put up on the screen are simply character qualities. Whether you're an elder or not, let me be frank, you need them. Whether you're an elder or not, you need them. Male or female, you need them. Grow your character. Grow in discipline. Grow in humility. Grow in righteousness. Grow in devotion. Grow in kindness. Grow in gentleness. Grow in goodness. Grow in perseverance. Grow in love. We'll go down the list. Grow your character. Or simply put, God will love you, but leave you on the shelf. And you be a loved shelf Christian but not a loved, used Christian. And you don't want that. Grow your character. Do not stop running, Christian. Stop running from your trials. Stop running from the trials. They are one of the single greatest instruments of God to build your character. Respond to them. Work with them. Again, this is one of the things that I remember at one time with my son. I've done this with each of my children. Didn't mean to break their heart, but I remember when he was younger, he was working on a song. I've shared this story before, but it illustrates this point, what you're going to need to do. He's working on this song with his sister and when he first started. and He just decided he was going to sing along, and he hadn't been singing before. Celeste's been singing since she was three, but Jeremy, he just, he just didn't. So I was standing outside the door, and I'm trying to think, okay, what, what do I do? Because they were going to do this for this youth event. 
So I knocked on the door, and I tried to be the affirming dad. I said, you know, son, that song sounds really good. You're playing that really well. And I wasn't exaggerating. It was pretty good. I said, Celeste, that sounds really good. I said, Jeremy, do you just decide to sing all of a sudden? You join your sister? He goes, yeah, dad, I thought it'd be kind of cool. I said, no, it won't be cool. (laughs) I said, if I can just be frank with you, teens can be as cruel as they come. And if you sing that song, you'll never live it down. You just, you can't even find the pitch for your hole in the head, you know, for, for, I mean, you just can't find it. You just, you just prepare, son. If you would trust me and you prepare and you let me guide you, trust me, it will come, but not tonight. Leads me to my next point. Submit fully to your present leaders. Defer. Rank yourself under, the word means, to your present leaders. I was a young man. I used to live with Rick, Rick and Neva. Rick was going to move to Gainesville to start the church, and I wanted to go so bad. Two most difficult words in my life have been wait and no. Wait and no. Wait and no. And I remember, uh, I, you know, I expressed that to Rick. Rick, I want to be with you, man. I want to go. I want to go. I was just newly married. It's a really good thing. Rick said, no, I don't know if I'd still be married. Those first three years, they were a lot harder than I ever dreamed because there was so much more flesh in me than I ever imagined. I'm sure you can imagine. But it was more than I could imagine. And Rick said to me, Mark, no, we want you to stay. I don't, you know, I didn't say this because I wanted to be the dutiful servant and I knew I needed to submit. But inside, I was like, you guys, you know, I want to go. No, stay. Unlike Brent, who I think became a pastor in about four years after he desired it, took me 11. God's word for me has been wait and no, wait and no, wait and no. Will you submit to your present leaders? If you won't, we can't plant churches. You can't be part of the team. We're not going to call you out, and I want you to know that. Number eight, develop your prayer life and your walk with God. You must develop your prayer life and your walk with God. I know Dennis, and I don't want to take away from one thing my brother said. I admire him and love him maybe as much as any man I know. You must be a person of the word. You must be equally a person of prayer. You must be a man or woman who knows how to pray. Talk to God. Give time to walk and talk with God. Or your life will never be deep. You'll be shallow. You'll be shallow. Prayer molds the person. It's in that prayer closet that our burdens are born to God. It's in prayer that we take steps of faith. It's in prayer that we touch God. Listen, if you'd like to, you don't have to, but you can go to the web of www.rockthechurch.com. Go to the Media Center and get a series I just called Why I Need Prayer to Live. You must become a person of prayer. And if you don't believe that, you're already off the team. You're not even on the team. You'll never be on the team. You've got to know what it means to be a person who can pray. Number nine. Get fully involved and committed in your church now. Did you notice both Tim Weber and Brent, they made a comment. It was the same comment. He said, I went to everything the church had going on. Did you notice that? You know what? I did too. Do you know for 30 years, I've been in church almost three or four times a week? 
See, like, I have a lot of friends, they chose softball leagues. See, don't you get it? Nobody thinks it's weird when a guy plays softball five nights a week. Nobody thinks it's weird when then he joins the basketball league for the winter. Nobody thinks it's weird if you are doing whatever you do because you love to do it. Well, I love it. I love the church. Your devotion to Christ is measured by your devotion to his body, the church. And if you aren't devoted to the body, you do not love the head. You've never heard that before. You better let that sink in. You prove to me you love the head by loving the body. If you don't love the body, you're not there. You're not involved. You don't love the body. Now, there can be conflicts that come up. You're sick sometimes. I, you know, let's not go crazy here. But the bottom line is, I was at everything, man, that I could possibly be at. Serving, involved, involved. It was my life. I only get one shot at life. You know that. Herschel emphasized that to you. We have one shot at life, and then you die. Just like everybody else. What will you do with it? In between is what makes the difference. Number 10, engage with the lost. Share your faith and go on mission trips. I wish I had time to develop this, but just briefly, when I say engage with the lost, learn to befriend them, learn to talk to them, learn to be comfortable around them, learn to associate with them as Jesus did. Learn to bring them into your confidence and earn their trust and respect. Practice deeds of kindness towards them and lead them to Christ. At least share your story, your love. Let your light shine and engage the lost and go on mission trips. I'd like to know that in the next two years if I talked to every one of you, you went on a mission trip. We have lots of them. Go to Latin America, go to Europe, wherever. Get involved in a mission trip. It will change your world perspective. Get out of this country. See the world from a different vantage point. Number 11, be a revolutionary Christian. Be one. Become one. Be one. I wished I could talk about this for, the whole, for, for months. My heart is burning so much on this. We are not living in a revolutionary time of anything. We are not living in a time in the church in America. She's so asleep. She's so self-centered. She has so prostituted herself to the world's values and sin. And I say that without shame. You can rebuke me if you want. The data is in. And I am telling you, as much as the prophet Hosea, who spoke to his own nation, we prostituted ourselves. We are idolaters. You know when, when Brent said earlier, young men, we struggle with lust. Ladies, let me talk to you. Did you know that desiring the good things of this life is idolatry? That's an exact quote verse from Thessalonians, Titus. And many of you are addicted to shopping. You get upset at the guys who struggle with pornography. Well, well, you know what it's like for us when the credit card keeps going up all the time and you've got to have this and you've got to have that and you don't step back and ask yourself, do I really need this? I don't really need it. I want it. It's lust. It's all there is to it. It's lust. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't want anyone getting me wrong. The shopping malls are where we get the things we need. There's nothing wrong with going to a shopping mall. But it's amazing how when you go to one, it creates desire in you, doesn't it? You know that as much as I do. As much as a guy watching the Victoria's Secrets stage show on TV creates desire, walking around the mall, looking for hour after hour, creates 
desire for that which will never make you happy. And it parts you with probably your expendable cash that could be used for other things. Nobody's talking about that in the Christian world. I'm the first person I've ever heard say that, and it's gotten me in trouble. Well, we don't have support groups for the, all the women shopping, do we? But we love it, gals, when we start getting on the guys about their pornography. Let's bring some balance, some equity. Let's understand that as, as the bride of Christ in America, by and large, male or female, indiscriminately, we have embraced the idolatrous practices of this world. Now listen to this very carefully. In order to counter the culture, we must live counterculture. In order to counter the culture, we must live counterculture. And then listen to this, because this is very important. You do not need to look counterculture. I'd love to talk about that. You do not need to look counterculture. You need to live counterculture. Jesus, when he came, he looked like a man. He looked like the culture he belonged to. I live in Minneapolis. There's a different kind of mindset in Minneapolis than in Des Moines. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. If I was going to drive, go to Texas, if I was going to go to Wyoming, trust me, I'd start wearing the cowboy boots that lace up. And I'd give up these jeans, and I'd start, this would be hard, wearing Wranglers. I wouldn't do the hat. I don't do hats. I'd give me the snap-up button shirts, get me a nice leather jacket. And I'd probably drive a truck. And I'm not joking. It's not that we, we have to look counterculture. We must live counterculture. If you'd have watched my family growing up, you'd have known. We had people. My, my children were taught at home. We did, our life was very different. But people, they would always surprise. You're homeschooled? Yeah, you're homeschooled. You don't look like you're homeschooled. Well, I'm homeschooled. That's the whole point. I don't want you to know. One sense, I want to be incognito, but I'm counterculture. My integrity, counterculture, my life, the way I love my kids, the way I talked about them, talked about my wife. See, in our holiness, in our righteous living, we must counter the culture. And we must live by a different set of values. I regularly tell my children, let me end on this. I look at them. I want you to look around this room right now. Just look around the best you can. Look to your right. Look to your left. Okay. I'm, I'm taking it that many of you are sitting by your friends, so when I say this, I hope I'll be safe. But, but I'm going to make a prediction, and my predictions usually come true. Oh, they really do. I, you can laugh, but they really do. Most of you in this room are going to marry somebody in this room. Your, your spouse is... Your spouse... Your spouse is probably in this room. Okay, now, just calm down. Calm down. Let's calm down. All right. Oh, man, let's just do a mass marriage right now. Join hands with the person next to you. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Okay, okay. No, we won't do that. I regularly tell my children, I look them in the eye and say, listen to me. Don't you ever forget, don't you ever forget that if I hadn't planted the rock, you wouldn't be married right now. 
Because, because you met both your spouses at the rock, and if the rock had not existed, literally, their paths would have never crossed. Will you be devoted to church planting? <laughs> I hope you'll be devoted to church planting. Your whole life is about the church. Our whole life is the church. It's our life. I love the church. I mean that. I've been so accused over the years. Oh, Mark always cares about just the new convert. All he wants to bring the lost, win the lost. The majority of my time is for the saved. I love you saints. I love the church. It's the best thing that ever happened to me was the church. I found my place, the church. Your place is the church. I'm going to introduce a very, very dear friend, maybe one of the dearest friends I have in the world. He's more to me than a brother. And God has used him in some special ways in my life. And I'm going to ask Doug to come up and share with you how the church has impacted his life. So, Doug, come on up. Chris, Chris Phillips, can you come here a minute? I don't have much time because... I'm not the special event coming here. I got 10? Okay. I pulled out a journal from um, my shelf from 1984, a journal I had been writing in. Um, I just uh, so appreciate Mark and his influence on my life and the heritage we have in this movement of people who are willing to do those 11 things and more than what Mark just talked about. I pulled out this journal and I wanted to get back to the point in my life where I was making some very big decisions on what I was going to do. I was in at Iowa State University. There's the wolf. And we were deciding, we had just had a conference similar to this, and we were deciding, the church there was deciding about sending out teams in a thing called Invasion 85. Now, how many of you are involved in Invasion 85? can't really see your hands, but God bless you guys. There was a verse I had written that morning in my quiet time, and um, it was Psalm 84.5. I don't know why I wrote it down. I just thought, ah, oh, this seems like a good psalm. It says, blessed are those whose trust is in you, whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. And I was walking across campus from the library to another one of the halls, and that verse came to mind, and God just flat out asked me on that Monday morning, November 26, 1984, he said, Doug, will you give yourself to that? Will you be a part even if it means leaving. See, I was on, my, on track to be a veterinarian. That had been my dream for many, many years. And I knew that if I moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky with this Invasion 85 team, that that would be done. That I'd have to pick up some other major and I'd be done with that dream. And God said, will you trust me? Will your strength be in me? Will you set your heart on pilgrimage, on moving, on leaving your own wishes? 
And I had at the same time been reading Jim Elliott's book called um, Shadow of the Almighty. About Jim Elliott, he was a missionary to the Alka Indians, was martyred in the early 50s. And he wrote this to a friend from college. He said, Christ needs some young fellows to sell out to him and recklessly toss their lives into his work. It seems to me like you ought to be one of them. And then I put my own name in there. I'm wondering if today you can put your own name in there. It seems like you ought to be one of them. And I wrote Doug. And I knew that I had some decisions to make. And so I decided against becoming a veterinarian, going to Iowa State uh, vet med school, and decided I would not be pulling calves out of cows every spring, and uh, which was my dream. I'm sure it doesn't sound like a dream to you, but <laughs> it was mine. And I decided to move out with this little team. Seven people moved down to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And if Ron and Susie Jagger are in this room, will you stand up? Are they in here? Ron was one of the deacons on that team, and him and Susie, he left a good job. I just transferred schools. He left a good job to move down there, and they were such an example. They're heroes to me of what it means to count the costs and move and help start church plants. So we got started with great aspirations there in 1985 and thinking we would grow to thousands. Well, we grew 50%. We went from seven people up to ten people. Well, one of them was their baby that they had. <laughs> so we felt we were pretty secure with that growth. And then one weekend, I think a bunch of people that were with us invited their family members, and I think we had 15 at one church service. And then it went back to ten, and, and it was really, really hard. It was, uh, it was very difficult work. And I remember at one of the low points of that time, um, those guys had moved back. It had been two and a half years later. They moved back, and many of them moved uh, up to Minneapolis, all of them, actually. And I was left in Kentucky. I was finishing up school. It was finals week. I was getting my first D in a class. And I just bounced the first check I'd ever bounced. And I was so discouraged, and I was homesick. All my family was at home, meeting at home. And God brought me to this verse in Mark 10, 29 and 30. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And I just wept. I just bowed down on my bed, and I wept. I said, God, you gave me that verse. You gave me that verse, because I know my reward's coming. And yes, we don't have great success to show for all this labor here. But God, you do. 
And you built our lives and you built our character. And you're going to continue to do that. From there, I moved up to Minneapolis and um, got with the church there, Evergreen, and um, started just throwing myself into it. The, the things that Mark shared, just throwing myself into it as a single guy. And, and, um, but I couldn't find a job at first. So I worked at the illustrious job of uh, being an all-night uh, cashier at a grocery store. And I got a phone call during that time of, uh, from a guy from northern Indiana. He had been talking to my advising professor, and he said, um, Hey, Doug, I got your name from your advising professor, Dr. Jones. And he said, I, I, uh, I would love to fly you down here and interview you and possibly have you run all of my farms. He was a huge hog farmer in northern Indiana. And, and he said, I want you to program all my computer systems and manage my farms, and I'll pay you well. And I listened, and I was honored because that was the marriage of my two, my animal science degree and my computer science degree. It was the, it was the perfect job. And I listened, and I said, I forget his name, and I said, you know, I'm honored. He said, but I'm a Christian, and I moved up here to help with the church, and I, I want to give myself to that. And he, was, he got real silent. He said, Doug, I want to tell you something. He goes, I don't even know you. He said, but a year ago, my father died. He said, a few months after that, I became a Christian. And he said, if there's one thing I wish, I wish that I had the decisions that you have to make. I wish that I could live my life for God. So I tell you, go for it. God bless you and go for it. And it was an affirmation to my soul of, God, thank you. Just one more thing of God affirming to me, he will reward. He will reward. I helped, uh, I moved out in, in um, became a pastor in 92 and moved out to help with the first, Evergreen's first church plant in um, Plymouth, in 1996, it was two years after John Van Dyke had started the church plant there and uh, moved out with a team of people and to help out with that church plant. And uh, things went very well for a while. There's growth, and um, my wife and I were there with, like I said, a team of others. And then John decided, laid on his heart from God, to move to Berlin and start a church plant there and take a number of our leaders from uh, Evergreen Plymouth at that time to uh, Berlin and um, it tested me and it's tested me since then am I really committed to church planting am I really committed to giving up other leaders other friends to church planting and he moved over there and um, uh, most of you know the, the story of Berlin and it's still going but John is back and and I know that I'm walking out on thin ice here, but I, um, this is a war, and it's brutal, and you're going to lose close friends. Men who you thought you'd, women who you thought you'd run to the ends of the earth with, and they're going to be gone. And God is asking you, will you set your heart on following me whose strength is in me, who has set their heart on pilgrimage 
because it's a bloody war. There's been other church plants out of Evergreen, and we've shared leadership there, and, and, um, and it's, again, it's been difficult, but rewarding. And I know that God's reward awaits me, and I know his reward awaits you. Let me close with that quote from Jim Elliott one more time. I don't know if his friend ever decided to follow Christ, but Jim Elliott did. Christ needs some young fellows to sell out to him and recklessly toss their lives into his work. It seems to me like you ought to be one of them. Thanks. It's been my joy and my privilege to be surrounded by men like Doug and women like that as well. Let's bow our heads for prayer and then we have something very special. Father, we just thank you and praise you that you're moving in this group of young men and women. <clears throat> Many of us here that are older, you're moving in our hearts and in our lives. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd be glorified through us. We ask you that you would continue the revolution you began in this movement some 30 years ago. We pray that it would continue long after we're gone. <clears throat> we pray that these young men and women would consecrate themselves and set themselves apart for the revolution of God on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you may know that we 